And thank you then for, to everyone else for joining with us as we gather to, to worship God together, as we hear from his word, as we enjoy this time together. Uh, and as we've said repeatedly already throughout our service, maybe you're aware that at the start of September, that does mark uh, a, something new for many people, not everyone, but for many of us. And in Church Life here, we're also starting something new as we uh, look at this new series in the book of Joshua. And some of you may be familiar uh, with the book of Joshua, many of the stories uh, from it will sound familiar as we journey our way through these chapters. Uh, others of us might have very little or no experience at all of Joshua. And wherever you find yourself along that journey, you are welcome here. Thank you uh, for being here. And I hope and pray that this is a, a wonderful, um, wonderful way for God to speak to us through his word as we engage with this great book. Joshua is an exciting book. It is a challenging book in many ways. It's, it's a book that celebrates great highs and also let's us see some intense lows. It's a dramatic book. It's a powerful book. And as you might imagine from its name, one of the key characters throughout the pages of this book is the man called Joshua, and we'll hear more about him shortly. But as I've been reading and studying this book, um, there, there's one great thing that has struck me time and time and time again. And that's the reality that this book isn't primarily a book about Joshua. It's not even primarily a book about the people of God. This is a book that majestically displays God for us. What I mean is that through the pages of, of Joshua, we're given a glorious picture of God, the, the goodness of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God, the provision of God, the grace of God, and so many more things. And one of the overarching banners that, that hangs over all of Joshua is the faithfulness of God, particularly when we think of his faithfulness to his promises, his faithfulness to his promises. God is, as we'll see through these pages, God is the ultimate keeper of his promise. What God says matters because what God says is true. His words never fail. It's one of the key lessons that we see throughout Joshua and then we're explicitly told twice at the end of Joshua when we read in two separate occasions at the end of verse 23 or 22 and again at the end of verse chapter 24, 3, sorry. In chapter 22, 45, Joshua tells the people, not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel has failed. Every one was fulfilled. God keeps his promises. And that's repeated in chapter 23. When Joshua says, you know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises of the Lord your God has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. You can see the impetus here. As this book comes to a conclusion, and I realize we're only starting it this morning, but as it comes to a conclusion, one of the lessons that it all points towards is the faithfulness of God to his word. The reality that God keeps and God makes true, lasting, unbreakable promises. And so that's why I'm going to call this series Unbreakable, because it is a journey through this wonderful book of scripture, yes, but one of the many things we will see is that Joshua is a book that shows us the God who makes and keeps his promises. There, is no, there can be no doubting that God will follow through on his word because it's his word. His word is true. His promises are unmatchable. They are unending. They are unbreakable. And so what he says will come to be. And therefore we can trust. And so when we hear what God has to say, 
even now as we read this inspired word to us thousands of years after it was written, as we hear what God has to say to us, we can also build our lives upon the solid foundation of what he says. Because his promises, his words are unbreakable. They are eternally true and good. And so my, my hope and prayer for this series, however the long, Lord however long the Lord has for us to spend in this great book. And I'll confess, I don't know when we're going to end. Uh, We're starting today, and I have no idea how long these 24 chapters may take us as the Lord guides us through. But my hope and prayer is that each and every one of us revels in the promises of God. That, That we see them, that we hear them, we enjoy them. And because we know them to be true, we then live in the light of his promises to us. So let's dive into Joshua chapter 1, and we're mainly actually only going to focus on the first nine verses this morning. I may well finish off chapter 1 at the prayer meeting on Wednesday, and then we'll start into chapter 2 next week. So um, the the whole of chapter 1 is really significant and important. I just felt that God had something to say most definitely from the first nine verses this morning as we turn there. Um, If you want to, to look up in Joshua in your own copy of God's Word, or if you've got one of the red chair Bibles around you, you'll find that on page 216. Uh, And as you turn to Joshua, maybe it's even helpful to notice where Joshua fits as a book in the storyline of Scripture. You can see that we're fairly near the start. We're in the Old Testament. We're even fairly close to the start of the Old Testament. Yes, there's been lots that have happened in the first five books thus far, but there is so much more in the pages of God's story to be written yet. And so we're fairly close and fairly early on in the history of the Israelite people, relatively speaking. And history is an interesting term here. Uh, some would say that Joshua is the first of the history books in the library of the, of the Bible. Um, it's coming straight after the law, so just a couple of pages before you'll see Deuteronomy ending. Deuteronomy is the final book of the law. But for Hebrew readers and original Hebrew readers, they wouldn't characterize Joshua as a history book. Because Hebrew people would summarize the whole of the Old Testament in three categories. The law, the prophets, and the writings. And so actually for the Hebrews who would have read this first, Joshua would have been considered one of the prophets. Now, one of the, pro- the prophets were then divided into former prophets and later prophets. The later prophets would line up with what we would call prophets. But the former prophets would include what we would call the history books from Joshua to Ezra. And that that may sound pedantic, but I think it's really important, and it helps us to understand one of the significant reasons, or one of the significant lessons we can see in Joshua. You see, Joshua is a historical book. There are facts here. These are true events that really took place. This is a historical record of a very significant portion of of the history of the Israelite people. But Joshua is not merely a record of historical facts. It is, it's prophetic in the sense that it records events. In the, in the words of one commentator, it records these events in the light of the promises and action of God. And therefore, the events that Joshua records are, are recorded in the book of Joshua, I should say. They are purposeful. They, they, they are God-focused. This is a record of how God led and, and acted in the lives of his people. It's not dry history. And so I think if we were to look at this and think, okay, we're looking at a historical book, some of us who maybe history doesn't really ignite a flame within us, some of us might think, oh dear, this is going to be a dry series. Anything but. Biblical history is the record of God's activity, 
God's faithfulness to his promises in the lives of his people. And therefore, in, in, the, in the widest and broadest sense, this is a prophetic book as we see God at work speaking and delivering his people and teaching us today, even as we read it. And so in saying that, though, this in no way diminishes the historical nature of this book. Yes, as I said, this is a detailed record of a mightily significant portion of Israel's history. And we know that right from how the book opens. If you've got Joshua chapter 1 there, let's read the first verse just for now. Joshua 1 verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid. Okay, let's pause there before we get into what the Lord says to Joshua. Right from verse 1, we are rooted in history. A significant moment has happened. Joshua has died. Sorry, Moses has died. Joshua dies at the end. Spoiler. Moses has died. And and we need to pause and recognize that, that not only does that orientate us historically with what is happening in the people of Israel at the time, we also need to recognize the importance of Moses in the history of God's people. God had chosen this man, Moses, to lead his people out of Egypt in slavery where they had been captive for 400 years. Moses had been the one that God had given his law to so that the people, his people, God's people, could then follow him faithfully and distinctively in the world around them. Moses had been the one guided by God, leading them how to establish the worship of God in the tabernacle as they journeyed through the wilderness. Moses had been the one who had led them through the wilderness under God's guidance right up to the boundary of the promised land. In fact, if you want to see the significance of Moses, maybe you do just want to turn back or it'll appear on the screen to the very final uh, paragraph of Deuteronomy. So literally a, a page flick from where you have, and this is what is written about Moses. Since then, the time at the end of Deuteronomy, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those, all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. We can see the esteem in which Moses is held. And, and it's a godly esteem. It's, it's the people recognizing God did something incredibly significant in and through Moses for his people. God appointed him. God led him. God equipped him. Moses was a man who led the people because he was being led by God. And now, Deuteronomy ends with his death. Joshua starts with his death after the death of Moses. And you can imagine being the people who had followed Moses. Indeed, this is now the second generation of people who had followed Moses through 40 years in the wilderness. Moses is dead? But hang on, Moses was the guy? What, what do we do now? Who do we follow now? Will, will we reach the land now? Is it, was God's promises not all wrapped up in Moses? Well, some people may have considered some of those questions, but as with all things, God was not taken surprised by Moses' death. Indeed, God was the one who told Moses that he would die before he reached the promised land. Moses had sinned, and as a consequence of that sin, God had said, you will take the people there, but you yourself will not go into the land. And we see in Deuteronomy 32, God takes Moses to a hill and shows him the promised land and then calls him home. And so this was not a surprise for God. Some of the people might have been wondering, hang on, Moses is dead. What do we do now? Well, God had a plan in place, and that plan was Joshua. 
Joshua had been around for quite some time. We first meet him actually back in Exodus 17. Then again in Exodus 32, he's mentioned as being on the mountain when Moses gets the law. Then in Numbers 13, we see Joshua as one of the 12 spies sent to suss out Canaan. And him and Caleb are the only two who say, this is good. God will give it to us. We must go. The other 10 complain the people don't go. And so they wait for 40 years before they get there. But Joshua was faithful. And then we get to Numbers 27. And there's a public commissioning of Joshua. Moses makes it clear because God has made it clear to Moses that Joshua is the man who's going to follow me. And therefore, Joshua is the man who you as his people should now follow. And so in the midst of possible grief of Moses' death, and we're told that they mourn for 30 days after the death of Moses, the people could know that even though this monumental shift had taken place in their community, that God had a plan. He had appointed and proved to them that Joshua was the man to carry on the mantle of leadership after Moses. And therefore, even though Moses had died, the people could keep going. They could keep following. They could keep trusting, not because of the man who was in front of them, but because of the God who put them there. And now as they stand on the edge of the Jordan River, having mourned the loss of Moses, they could know the reality of the statement that Dr. Dale Roth Davis has said, that there is a passing of an era yet the endurance of the promise. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? As the people stand here, as they mourned and just finished their period of mourning for Joshua, or for mourning for Moses, they can know that that era has passed, but the promise of God is enduring. Yahweh's fidelity does not hinge on the achievements of men, however gifted they may be, nor does it evaporate in the face of funerals or rivers. Of course, those words being the fact that they've They've had a funeral for Moses. They're standing on the bank of the Jordan River. None of that is enough to squash Yahweh's fidelity to his promise. In the ever-changing world that these people were living in and then that we are living in, God's faithfulness is unending and his promises are unbreakable. His faithfulness is unending and his promises are unbreakable. So back to Joshua chapter 1. Let's read the rest of that section from verse 2 through to verse 9. Moses, my servant, this is the Lord speaking to Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. If you happen to have, by the way, a Bible with some maps in it, really helpful to have as we work our way through Joshua. Um, Paul said on Wednesday night at the prayer meeting, he loves a good map. We will get there, especially when it comes to dividing up the land. We will show some maps that will become a bit of a geography lesson, but this is good geography, biblical geography. Um, but we're not going to do that today. But here you can see the Lord showing the land that is theirs if they claim it. Verse 5. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. 
Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. It's an amazing opening to this book, isn't it? Joshua set up as the leader of the people, commissioned by God to bring his people into the promised land. And as we noticed during one of our prayer meetings in the summer when we looked at this passage, that we we should take note of God's activity in these words, shouldn't we? That everything is being done at his leading, in his way, in his timing, for his purpose, just as he promised. This is what I mean about Joshua actually being a book about God. And if I could summarize what I hope to then share from the rest of these verses briefly with us this morning, if I could summarize it in one sentence, it would be this. The certainty of God's promise brings courage to our obedience. The certainty of God's promise brings courage to our obedience. The Lord at least three times here tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. But in doing so, he shows that Joshua can have that strength and courage because of God's promises. And it's these two aspects of the certainty of God's promise and the courage in our obedience, that's going to provide the framework for the rest of our time this morning. We'll spend the vast majority of our time thinking about that promise uh, section first. So firstly then, let's think of the, the certainty of God's promises. Particularly in these verses, what, what, are, what does God promise to his people, to Joshua and his people here? What, well, there's two main things that I want to highlight. And the two things are that he promises provision and he promises presence. Provision and presence. Firstly, we can see from verses 2 and 3, he promises the provision of the land. Verses 2 and 3, let me read again. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. See, God had promised to provide this land. There was no doubting that God was going to provide it. In fact, the promise is so sure that there's some translations of the Bible will actually have verse 3 in the past tense. So the ESV actually renders verse 3 as every place where where the sole of your foot is set, uh, 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 sorry, every place that the sole of your foot will will tread upon, I have given to you already. I have given to you. God had promised this land and therefore it was as good as given. And so as Joshua and the people stand on the edge of this vast area of land, God reminds them that he had promised this land to them. This land before them had been promised. And why was, it, why was this land in particular significant? Well, well, that land had been promised. It was a promise that had been confirmed through Moses, yes, but it's a promise that goes way back to Abraham. In Genesis 12, God calls Abram and says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And yes, that's about the people who would follow Abram, Abram's community. The people of God would be great, but it's also talking about the promise that God would give his people a place. Because later in Genesis 12, we see God saying to Abram, the Lord appeared to Abram as he traveled through Canaan, this area of land. God said to Abram, to your offspring, I will give this land. The land of Canaan was to be for God's people. And Joshua and the people now stood on the verge of it. And that's why 
God then getting back to Joshua chapter 1. That's why God says to Joshua at the end of verse 6, you will lead the people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. This land is significant because God promised it to Abram centuries before. And now Joshua and the people stand on the precipice of taking it, of inheriting the fulfillment of that promise. You see that for the people of Israel, this, this section of geography was not just a place to live. It wasn't just a place to call home. This, this place before them was the place that God had said would be their place. God had promised, this is the land I will give you. And now they stand ready to walk into it. They were getting to see God's mighty hand of provision right in front of them. And yes, the people's faithfulness to that promise had ebbed and flowed. And so they'd spent a long time wandering before now God is finally showing them the inheritance that was due. God's promise had never faltered. He had promised to provide. And that's what they were going to now see right in front of their faces. And so the promise of provision was there. Secondly, we see the promise of presence. In the second half of verse 5, and again in verse 9, we see this. Second half of verse 5, God says to Joshua, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And again in verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And so here's the promise of God's presence for his people. As I mentioned at the prayer meeting in the summer, we will only ever appreciate the impact of that promise when we see the immensity of the person who makes it. So, so the impact of the promise of that presence, his presence, we see, we see the immensity of that when we see the immensity of the one who makes that promise. Yahweh promises his presence with his people. Yahweh, the relational God who has chosen his people to show his love and might and justice through to the world. Yahweh, the one who split the Red Sea and rescued his people from Egypt. Yahweh, the one who made the mountain shake as he gave the law. Yahweh, the one who provided manna and quail for 40 years in the desert. Every day, these people had food to eat from the very hand of God, not to mention water from rocks a couple of times. This is Yahweh, the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-sovereign one. He is the one who promises his presence. Therefore, his presence makes a difference. His presence changes everything. And Joshua and the people, as they stood on the edge of the river here, they needed to hear this again. As they stood on the banks of the Jordan, a difficult land lay ahead of them. Yes, it was a land that was promised to them. Yes, God was going to provide it for them, but there were enemies who needed to be driven out. There were people who, need, who were needed to be subdued. There, were, there was victories that needed to be claimed. This was not going to be straightforward or simple. The people needed help and assurance before they stepped in, and to have the promise of God's presence with them, well, that was all the strength they needed or should have ever needed. And just as I mentioned that, let me say that, that, that it's some of those accounts, particularly those accounts of war, of destruction, uh, those are some of the accounts throughout Joshua that, that some of us struggle with. Uh, as we read them, we, we, they seem to jar against us, that this, this doesn't feel like how we assume God or his people should act. 
And I get that. And we'll unpack it more as we work our way through these, this series. But if I can lovingly and humbly say, we, we, we must allow God's word to be God's word. It, it is good. It is true. Even when it might seem ugly to us. And so what we need to do is then work out, well, what is God saying to us here in these passages? The, the lessons that we are to learn there about his holiness, about his judgment of sin, about his sovereign plan, which he is working out, and sometimes we only see a tiny part of. And in the midst of all of that, we see grace in the midst of wrath. We see patience as God longs for people to turn from sin to him. And so all of those things we will see more in weeks to come. And we'll unpack that as we go. But the point for now is as the people readied themselves to cross the river, the promise of God's presence with them would have provided or should have provided all the strength they needed to boldly go. And so God had promised his provision. He had promised his presence. And we see that those promises then lead to something. Those promises have an impact. They're not just theoretical statements. They're not just truths to be claimed. They are actually promises that lead to action. See, in verses 6 and in verses 9, back into Joshua 1, we read these words. Be strong and courageous because you will lead the people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. So as God tells Moses, you will lead the people into the land. You will lead them there because I swore that land to their ancestors Therefore, you can be strong and courageous. The promise of God's provision was the fuel that Joshua needed to be strong and courageous. It wasn't about girding himself up. It wasn't about having a big rousing speech and a giant war cry. No, it was rely on the promise of God's provision. That's all the fuel you need for strength and for courage. And again, we see it in verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Why? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. See, the promise of presence is the fuel for strength and courage. Because the Lord is with you, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. Why? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. See, these certain promises of God, they have an impact on his people. They they fuel something in his people because they know and we therefore can know the certainty of God's provision, the certainty of God's presence. We can be strong and courageous when we respond in obedience to him. And so because of what they know to be true, that can change the way they live. And so in in a similar way, but a much lesser way, I would suggest knowing the certainty of gravity means that I can jump without knowing that I'm, or without thinking that I'm going to hit the ceiling. I know that gravity will hold me down, and so I can act in a certain way. I would say in a much more certain way, because gravity changes. If you leave this planet, you'll know about it. But gravity changes even around this planet. There's variation in how strong it is, but not with God's promises. There is no variation there. Remember the promises from the end of Joshua? Not one of his words fail. So because we know them to be solid ground on which we stand, We should then live in the light of them. And this takes us back to the summary statement that we mentioned a couple of minutes ago. The certainty of God's promise brings courage to our obedience. See, his his promises are secure. Yes, we therefore must act in obedience. We see this 
in this passage so much. There, there are so many verbs here that God tells his people to do, isn't there? Just a quick survey of them will show. So get ready in verse 2. Everywhere you set your foot in verse 3. Then down into verse 7. Obey my law. And again in verse 7. Do not turn from it. Then again in verse 8. Meditate on the law. Be careful to do everything that is written in it. There is action here that God's people are to do in response to the certainty of his promise. And it's important for us to see that link between God's unbreakable promise and the people's necessary action. It's not enough to, to, to theoretically believe the promise if it doesn't change your belief. It doesn't change your behavior, is what God is saying to the people. So the people could well have said, God has promised to give us this land. Great, let's camp out here until he gives it to us. No, he said, I have given you that, so get up and go into it. They must obey his law. They must keep his word. They must meditate on it. Why? So that they may be careful to do everything it says. See, the promises that God had for his people here still have to be stepped into. God had given certainty in the outcome, but the people still had to step forward in obedience. And this is a theme we'll see throughout Joshua. Indeed, it's clear throughout all scripture. God is sovereign over all things. And in his sovereignty, he invites us. Indeed, he commands us to obey, to act in obedience to his sovereign will. So he gives his people clear instruction on what to do. He tells them what will happen if they do it. And then he says, now go and do it. We see in verse 7 and verse 8, it's clear here, isn't it? That if you do those things, what will happen to the people? They will know success. They will know prosperity. They will inherit the land. There are some who say that actually the, the boundaries that God sets out here in verse 2 of this chapter, they're not the full boundaries that we see Israel taking by the end of Joshua. But that's because the people don't fully go. They don't completely obey. And so they miss some of the blessing and some of the fulfillment that God had promised. But for now, the point is this. The certainty of God's promise must lead to action, not passivity. Maybe we hear that really helpful and true language of we need to rest in the presence and the promises of God. Absolutely we do. But that rest is active. That rest, as I said, is not setting up camp on the banks of the Jordan waiting for God to do it all. No, that rest is knowing God has promised that, so I'm going to go in obedience to his call. And throughout the story of Joshua, we're going to see the reality that obedience matters. Faith-filled action matters. But maybe that begs the question, what action are we to take? What are we to do? How are we to know the steps to go? And finally then, let's think about the reality that God gives the instruction that the way in which we know how to step is by obeying his law. He's made it clear. Verses 7 and 8 couldn't be clearer on this, I don't think. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. Why? So that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous 
and successful. See, God's word is paramount. Keeping his word is paramount. Meditating on it is paramount. If we want to know what obedience looks like, we have to hear from him what that is. We can't just guess. Joshua could boldly and courageously go into the land because God told him where to go. And so if we want to faithfully and joyfully and boldly and courageously obey, then we've got to know what we're obeying and we obey his word. See, this is not just a religious book. This is not just a history book. These are the words of God to his people. These are the promises of God to his people. And so if we want to know what God says to us, we find the answer here. And therefore, fueled by the certainty of what we see here, we can then live courageously obedient lives. We keep his word. We keep to his word. We don't turn from it. We meditate on it. We allow God Almighty to speak to us through his wonderful word. The certainty of God's promise brings courage to our obedience. I hope you can see how that is a summary of these nine verses at least. And please join us on Wednesday night as we then continue through the rest of chapter one and finish that off as Joshua then goes to the people and the people ready themselves to go. But for now, what, hopefully we can see this, in, this amazing journey we're, we're embarking on as we spend time in this great book. As we will find treasure that God has for us here. Yes, of course, there will be difficult passages in this, in this book. There will be questions to ask, but the sure and certain and life-giving words of God Almighty will, will speak to us. And as we listen to them, as we read them, as we meditate on them, may our lives be shaped by them. That as we become even more convinced of the certainty of God's promises, may that fuel the courage in our obedience as we seek to live for him now. And I realize there's much more that could be said about this chapter. But as we, as we close for this morning, I, I want to turn our attention to the table. Not as an add-on, not as a change of focus, not as, a, not as a, a segue to communion, but as we think about the reality of the certainty of God's promise bringing courage to our obedience, how right is it that we look at the cross of Christ? The one who set that perfect example of obedience for us. The one who knew, Jesus, who knew that God's way was better. And so he submitted to that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. The certainty of God's promises gave courage to his obedience. And so that obedience to death, even death on a cross, means that we can be welcomed into the promises of God. That in faith, in repentance, and in trust in what Jesus has done, we can know these promises to be true for us. So Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There are these and many more glorious promises in God's word. Show us what the cross of Christ has won for us. And indeed, we know, as Second Corinthians one twenty says, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. 
we serve and worship and are saved by the God who keeps his promises. And so if you know Jesus Christ as your savior this morning, live in the light of his true and certain word. Live in the light of the reality of Romans 8, 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let your hearts be flooded by his truth, by what he has securely won for you, the inheritance that awaits you, and the life that he's called you to now. And maybe if you're here and you don't yet believe in the gospel message of Jesus, may, may you see the certainty of his word, the, the need for salvation because of who he is, that he is a holy God. He is a God who will judge sin. Yet he is a God who has provided the substitute in our place so that we no longer have to hold the penalty of sin ourselves. But in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And so may the certainty of his promise bring us all to that, that courage that we need to obey his call to repent and to call on him for salvation. He is a good God, isn't he? He is a good God. He is our savior and our king. And so as we seek to follow him, may he be glorified. We're going to sing and then we'll, um, we'll share around the table together. But let me pray as we finish. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the ultimate maker and keeper of promises. That your words never fail, not one of them. And so we thank you, Father, for the promise of salvation. We thank you for the promise of forgiveness of sin. We thank you for the promise of eternal life with you. We thank you for the promise of help and strength by your spirit now as we seek to live lives that glorify you. Thank you, God, for the sure and certain promises upon which we can build our lives. We can stake our claims. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to do that. That, yes, as we embark on this journey through Joshua, you would, you would help us to see your faithfulness there for them. But also, Father, may you speak to us of your continued faithfulness, of your continued trustworthiness, of our continued need for your help and strength so that we can then courageously obey. It is all, Father, for your glory that we pray. It is in the saving and victorious name of Jesus that we ask these things. Amen. Amen.